Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you here back at the end of another week for our weekly market recap featuring, as usual, my good friend, portfolio manager, Lance Roberts. Lance, how are you doing, buddy? Hey, it's Friday. Glad to be here. It's a whole week this week. You know, it wasn't holiday short like last week. So uh, I'm tired now. Wow. Yeah, you had to work a full week. I'm, I'm amazed you made it here, week. buddy. Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. Um, all right. Well, look, we got a ton to talk about here. Um, and let's start um, with a big number, 4,300, right? S&P hit 4,300 here. Um, you know, we've been sort of tracking the run up in the markets here. Um, a lot of people are really jumping on the bull train now. Hey, you know, uh, bears have been wrong. Uh, momentum keeps going great. I'm making a lot of money in the market. You know, the, the bears are losers. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, they're right so far for this year. Oh, you know, I can't, can't deny. Um, you have been, you know, warning on this program. First, you were warning on this program that, that we may have a better year than the bears were, were calculating coming into the year. And of course you're right on that one. You've been warning recently about, um, you know, one, the narrowness of the market, um, and two, that it might be getting ahead of itself, getting really overbought. Um, this week we saw some breadth enter the market. Um, does that make you feel more bullish or are you still concerned about, you know, how fast the markets run up and the fact that there might just be even just a cooling off, you know, correction well, coming? You know, the problem is, is, is and we've, we've talked about this narrowness of the breadth. If you take a look at what's been driving the market since the beginning of the year, it, it's, you know, technology, discretionary and communications. But really, if you if you break down those sectors, the biggest weights in those sectors are Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, Tesla, right? That's those are the big drivers of those kind of four sec those three sectors. Um, so it's been a very narrow market. You strip those stocks out, you've had no gains for the year. So uh, we have been talking about this potential for a rotation in the markets. We talked about this a little bit last week. You know, we kind of went to simplevisor.com and we showed it the, the our relative rotation analysis. And it was interesting because this week. You know, small caps and, and mid caps were all the way in the big oversold category. And in three days, they were an overbought. It was just, it was such a huge short covering move, everything kind of to the top of the overbought condition. So Friday, we started, we, you know, that rotation was over and we were back to Tesla, Google, Amazon kind of leading the way on Friday. So, you know, what we need to see for a healthier market is a rotation that lasts longer. And we need to see the breadth of participation really start to, 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 to broaden across that. And I wrote a, an article on Tuesday, uh, in particular, talking about this kind of narrow market and went through the S&P 500 showing, you know, who's, you know, how many stocks are actually outperforming the market and who's not. And, you know, and you can really kind of see at that point that it's been a very narrow advance. And so, in other words, you know, for most people that are invested in the market, unless you just own the S&P, um, you're probably underperforming the market this year unless you happen to just own five or six stocks, and then you're mm -hmm. really doing well this year. And, and there's certainly people out there that threw all their money into AI stocks and they're doing great. But you know, we've seen this before. This is the, the meme stock rally that we saw back in 2020. This is the IPO SPAC run that we saw in 2021. This is the dot-com bubble that we saw in 1999. And the point about saying that is I'm not saying that all this is going to crash, right? I'm not saying that at all. I am saying that these, that these very narrow rallies can last a lot longer than you expect. It can be very frustrating. And because these are the largest stocks in the index, if you're betting on a big downside move in the market, that's frustrating because these stocks can support the whole market. 
And then, then, but it's important to understand when you look at something like NVIDIA trading at 40 times price to sales, it's also important to remember that the earnings will not support valuations where they are today. And just like we saw in 2000, when reality collided with fantasy, there's eventually going to be a retracement in, in these valuations at some point in the future. It doesn't mean the market's going to crash. We have a dot-com you know, analogy, but we are going to see that market rotate into other sectors of the market. And just like today, um, we bought some Coke, uh, Coca-Cola stock uh, as about a 3% dividend yield and, and staples as a function are grossly oversold relative to technology communications discretionary. And a lot of those sectors that we talked about last week that were very oversold actually outperformed over the last week. So a lot of those stocks that we had talked about, we talked about adding, you know, energy recently that performed well this past week. You know, so we saw we saw that rotation start to occur. We need to see it continue now. And we don't have any early evidence of that yet. Okay. Um, so a couple of things I want to pull on there. One is just give a little bit more detail if I heard you correctly, how in a matter of just a couple of days, <laughs> small caps and other parts of the market from oversold to overbought. Like, right. how, it, is it just a pure short squeeze or how do you get that? How do you cover that much distance in just a couple of days? Well, so when you're talking about relative performance, right? So it's relative to some index. So in other words, let's talk about race cars for a second. So uh, what kind of car do you drive? Uh, I drive kind of a beat up Toyota Highlander. Oh, we have a Chevy Volt too. Okay, so so you take your Chevy Volt, and, and so that's our benchmark, right? So I'm going to bring over my 1965 Barracuda with a with a you know 428 Hemi in it, and we're going to compare that side by side, right? There's no way your Volt's going to keep up with it. Okay, so that's all fine and dandy, but the relative benchmark is just a function of kind of the pace. And so if you have something that's been very oversold and then you know, small caps move four and a half percent in a day, right? I mean, you took an entire month's move and you did it in a day. So all of a sudden you had this very sharp move in, 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 in one area of the, of the market that was far faster than the move of the, of the benchmark itself. And so that relative performance got overbought very quickly. If you take a look at, at IWM as an example for the small cap mid cap chase, well, what that, you know, you know, we were two and three standard deviations oversold. And in a matter of two days, we were three standard deviations overbought. That's how fast it moved. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like if you think about stretching a rope, there's a, you know, if you think about physics and we talk about stretching rubber bands, what physics says, if I stretch a rubber band in one direction, right, and then I'll let it go, when it snaps back, it will snap back an equal distance in the opposite direction before it comes back to the middle. And that's exactly what happened. We had stretched that rubber band to the downside and it literally went the same distance to the upside in a matter of two days. So it's sometimes that, but that was all short squeeze. Um, we, we saw, you know, options just pile, retail investors just piled into call options on small caps. Um, just, it, just, it was just a very big surge all at once. And, and likely most of that move is done for the moment. We'll see what happens over the next week or so. Okay. And I, I think kind of digesting what you said earlier, you're sort of like, hey, we're, we're still going to wait and see. This is, is probably in some ways a positive step of 
okay, there's now money beginning to go into other parts of the market besides just those very few stocks that have been driving things so far. But it's so small and fierce and and now extreme to the other side that that you know, we'll put words in your mouth here, but I, I'm not getting a sense from you that you're like, oh, this is really important. Now we're seeing that breath come in. You're like, this was kind of a little a little fit, a little start, but but we don't yet know if this really is a broadening, a real sustained broadening yeah. of the market like you want to see. Yeah. What would have been better is if we would have seen a slower rotation and just see, you know, some of the high flying NASDAQ stocks just kind of start to stall a bit and just start to see a gradual move in some of these other stocks and just saw kind of a gradual rotation of money within the market. That would have been a lot healthier than this kind of spastic move we saw last week. But unfortunately, that's kind of what the markets are, are these days. It's these spastic rotations from one side to the other. And, and it makes it much more difficult to manage money that way. Yeah, well, I bet. And, and things are getting just sort of more extreme in terms of the market setup. So uh, I was talking to the New Harbor guys yesterday. They had a chart showing, um, I believe it was call option vol volume. And it was the highest it had been in the data series, which was, I don't know how many years, but let's say 20 or so. So even back, you know, two years ago when everybody was buying GameStop, you know, hand over fist, and they were buying Tesla call options at ridiculous prices. Uh, and we were all lamenting at how crazy the frothy speculation was back then. We may be at an even greater extreme right now on the call option buying. Yeah, no, we, we've taught a whole generation now of these younger investors really over the last, you know, five, six years. We've taught them all about, you know, and, I, and, and just for instance, you know, I get a lot of emails uh, from your viewers talking about, oh, I want to, you know, I've got $100,000. I want to buy, I want to buy options. I'm like, you're ridiculous. Um, but this is what we've taught everybody now is that this is the fast way to make money. Don't, don't buy stocks. You buy options. You leverage up. You buy options. 90% of options expire worthless. But, you know, it sounds great in theory that you're going to make all this money. Unfortunately, more often than not, it doesn't work out that well. Right, right. But I, I'm just saying probably from a capital managing standpoint, you got to feel uncomfortable when there's that much speculation in the market and you're seeing these extreme, you know, spastic movements where yeah. you're just like, God, I, I'd, I'd much rather have it just be kind of boring and a lot more sort of predictable than like, I don't know what's going to happen, not even tomorrow, but like in the next minute with this type of, yeah. you know, frothiness. No, no, it, it's, it's true. I mean, you know, you know, NVIDIA, you know, obviously that's the darling of AI right now. And you know, its move after earnings was, you know, just, you know, grossly overdone. And, and now you've got this very interesting, you know, pattern that's developing in NVIDIA stock. If that company doesn't doesn't hit all cylinders in the next earnings environment, it's going to be real, it's going to be very problematic for the company because the expectations built into earnings for NVIDIA are now so elevated that they have no room for error at this point at all. So, you know, all these companies better show up and buy quarter million dollar GPUs because if they don't, for any reason, the economy slows down, whatever it is, they've got problems. Yeah, you know, I was gonna bring this up later under a different topic, under sort of jobs, but but I'll, I'll pull it up here now, which is um, just hearing you talk like that makes me think about conversations we've had about the ESG movement uh, in, in, in investing, where just a ton of money was, has been flooding into the ESG space for more, almost more philosophical reasons than anything else. Now, of course, it's not just out of philosophical reasons. There's a lot of capital that has got a mandate to go into ESG, right? So a lot of people have been playing stocks, expecting more and more money to come in there. And you and I were talking about how you know the expectations for future fund flows into ESG 
we're getting really kind of, you know, excessively optimistic, right? Like there was yeah. going to have to be a lot of continued capital to come in here. And we sort of talked about, you know, that there may not be enough sort of financial performance to really justify all that capital going in here. And, and I don't know if I told you on camera, but I know I've told you off camera about a good friend of mine who um, got recruited away to um, work for a large ESG company uh, that basically was in the business of helping companies like quantitatively measure the impact of their ESG investments, right? And for a while there, they 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 were just couldn't pick up the phone fast enough. Just so much demand to work with this company uh, because you know corporations are saying, "Look, I'm spending all this money. I want to have some way to to be able to prove I'm getting an ROI off of it." And I remember warning this person. I'm not going to say if it's a man or a woman because I want to protect their identity, but um. Uh, I remember talking to them, I don't know, six, eight months ago and just saying, hey, if, 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 if people start kind of questioning the return of, 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 of all the money that's getting pumped in the ESG, are, are you guys prepared if there's sort of a shift in your business? And the person said, I mean, quite honestly, no, we're, we're not right now because we're just so busy trying to handle you know, the orders that are coming in. That person got laid off today. Wow. The, the the business and he was one of the last men standing. Meaning, in the past like two three months or so, the book of business just evaporated for this company. And this is one of the largest companies, sort of in the ESG pickaxes. You know, selling pickaxes yeah. to the miners yeah. type business. Uh, so it just shows. And this is going back to your point about Nvidia, where it's like once the bloom starts coming off the rose, that oh my goodness, we might not actually achieve perfection. Yeah. The unwind can be way faster than you can imagine. Yeah, that's right. And that's absolutely right. You know, and that's, you know, it's funny, you know, we've talked a lot about ESG. I've written a lot about, you know, the, the kind of the green mail that goes on behind ESG before and performance of ESG. And, you know, this is, you know, I'm getting a lot of people now that are, are starting to, you know, email us and go, you know, hey, I want you to manage money for me, for me but I don't want you to buy, you know, these stocks, right? I don't want you to buy any of these book companies that you know are in there, and, and it's interesting because you know these companies, a lot of their policies are driven by their major shareholders, and their major shareholders are companies like BlackRock, which is a huge proponent of ESG and and kind of the quote unquote woke principles. And so it's interesting, you know, we were boycotting a lot of these, you know, Anheuser Busch and Bud Light, you know, for the decisions they make. Which are which is interesting because the company we should be all boycotting is buying anything related to BlackRock. <laughs> and, you know, and so if, you know if you really want to have an effect on changing corporate outlooks, stop buying stuff related to BlackRock. Stop buying their ETFs. Stop buying the companies that they invest in because that's you know once you hurt BlackRock's profits, that will make a shift for all all to these other companies that they really have. A, they control ten trillion dollars of capital, right? So they have a big influence as a shareholder over company decision making at the board level. Yeah, the problem is, I think if you said I'm not going to touch anything that BlackRock's invested in, I don't know what your <laughs> consideration set is. But it's a lot smaller than the general market. Yeah, your options get get slow real quick. But yeah, stop buying their ETF. That'll help too. So yeah, yeah. but but it's interesting too because I think at the end of the day, it really does all come back. I sort of say this a lot every time we go through a down cycle is. Um, you know, everybody has their their values. Everybody has their that they're happy to espouse publicly. Everybody has their virtual signaling of of some yeah. way, way, shape, and form they do. But once it gets down to cash flows, right? Once cash flows get tight, 
it just all comes down to the numbers for at least for corporate America, oh, yeah. right? So no well, matter no, how much your company is telling you we're all in this together, no matter how much an investor is telling you their lofty principles about their selection process for we don't invest in these types of companies or whatever, when the chips are down, it's just like we got to do whatever we got to do to you know protect the company, stay afloat, whatever, and they will just drop weight. And this is very true. Like I think. The ESG narrative that these companies are still talking about, they're still saying we should do it. But if you look at their actions, they're totally slashing their budgets right now, as this company I just told you about is a great yeah. example of. Yeah, no, and, and, and Ian, you, know, you and I talked about this, by the way, you know, when we first started doing these podcasts, because that was when ESG was kind of the rage at the moment. I was writing articles about ESG. I said, look, you know, we've seen all this before. We saw this back in the late 90s. Um, you know, this is when we weren't going to invest in any sin stocks, right? And that was the big no-no, no pornography, no, uh, no cigarettes, cigarettes yeah. tobacco, no gambling. You, you weren't supposed to invest in anything that wasn't, you know, uh, you know kind of no, no, uh, these vices, right? No sins. And, and everybody was like jumping on that train. It's like, yeah, we're not going to buy those. That all ended as soon as those stocks started outperforming everything right. else. And you remember just, and, and again, just a couple of years ago, Oil prices are declining. Nobody wants to oil, own oil stocks in 2021, right? It's like, oh, oil's evil. Don't, you know, they're, they're anti-climate and all this. Don't buy energy stocks. And then, of course, they couldn't get enough of them in 2022 when they were up 50% and the market was down 20. So, you know, it all, at the end of the day, all these virtues and, and morals and things that people say they have, and when it comes down to losing money, all those go out the window. It's At the end of the day, whatever's performing is going gonna, is gonna to win. Right. And, and that's just sort of want to bring it back to your point about NVIDIA, which is um, the point here is not so much morality based um, investing. And, hey, you should invest based on your morals. I'm not, I'm not, not telling you yeah. to, to go against your values. I'm just trying to tell you what the market does, right, where the market loves a narrative. But once it thinks it might start losing money, forget that the, the narrative goes out the window and it's just I got to sell to protect what I have. Right. And so something like NVIDIA, that's at a ridiculous. I mean, there's no other word than ridiculous for 40 times sales, right? Um, once the market wakes up and says, you know what, we might not get paid fully that in earnings, <laughs> you know, uh, don't be surprised to see that potentially deflate really fast. Yeah, well, you know, and, and, and it's, it's just it's just an important part is to, you know, it's, you know, regardless of what your beliefs are, leave that on one side of the table. Our job as investors are to make money. And you may not like a company for one reason or the other. But if it's cheaply valued and it's going up in price and the fundamentals are strong, you should not invest in it just because of some personal belief that you have. Because again, our job is to make money with our money, leave, leave all the politics and everything else you know, for other venues that you can espouse those in. But when it comes to investing, just invest to make money and to protect capital. That's what will work best over time. Right. And I don't want to get too moralistic here, but you're, you're highly more likely to make a bigger difference in the world by making your money in the markets and then philosophically deploying that to the causes that you care most about, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, okay. So, um, uh, all right. So you, oh, oh two things. Um, first, you uh, mentioned that you are beginning to put more capital to work in kind of the unloved parts of the market right now um, in anticipation. And we talked about this a lot last week, so we don't have to really rehash it here, but it sounds like you're taking action this week, which is to say, hey, this mania and AI and these top you know, few tech stocks is looking pretty long in the tooth. At some point, that rotation is likely to happen. 
let me get into these more unloved, more sort of staples, you know, value pockets of the market where that that rotating capital is likely to go. So you are actually okay. taking some some active well, if, right. But if you've been listening to the show over the last several weeks, you know, we've been doing this for several weeks. You know, we bought regional banks uh, previously. Um, we bought, um, you know, we bought AMD, you know, before it really kind of got on this whole AI train as well. So, you know, that stops, that stock's up like 30% since we bought it. So, you know, you know, there's, you know, there's, we've been, we've been buying into these other areas of the market over the last, really the last month. And, and so every week, you know, we talk about what trades did you make last week? Well, you know, we bought a little bit of energy or we bought, you know, regionals or we regional banks, or we bought this or that. And, and that's just been a, a building process. We've also been adding to our longer duration bond portfolio because that signals or those signals are starting to really start to, to come into play now that suggest that yields have probably topped here and that over the course of the next 12 to 18 to 24 months, yields are going to be lower than where they are now. Uh, that's a much longer duration play. But, you know, those are things that, you know, we're building into our portfolio now expecting, you know, further rotations to occur as we move through the year. Okay. okay. All right. Well, look, um, I, I do want to move to, um, uh, you know, you, you basically said, look, what, what's going to really drive the action from here is going to be earnings, right? You know, are, are the earnings going to come and support these crazy valuations or these, I shouldn't say crazy, these excessively high valuations that uh, are in the AI space? Um, but also, too, you know, are there good values out there, companies like the ones you're beginning to put your money into right now, where earnings... Yeah, everybody was predicting the earnings recession, but if earnings strengthen from here, you may be picking up really good values. You wrote a piece this week titled, Earnings Improve, um, but then it has a little caveat. It says, beware of Trojan horses. So right. walk us through the main insights from that piece. Well, so so again, you know, if you take a look, and I've got like, the, the thing is just full of charts and graphs and analysis. And if you want to pull any up, feel free to do so, but yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, the, the the bottom line of this is really, that if you take a look at where we were in quarter four earnings and then take a look at quarter one earnings, those actually strengthened. So we went from about $171 a share to $174 a share in earnings. Now these are, I'm talking about gap. I'm not talking about operating earnings. I'm talking about gap reported earnings. So uh, this is the, the real number, um, but those definitely did improve. And now analysts currently expect that trend of improvement to continue all the way through 2024. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that, except that you're going to have to have really strong economic growth to support continued growth in corporate earnings. Because where do earnings come from? Earnings simply are a function of what you and I do as consumers, what we spend money on. Um, that's what, you know, in other words, Apple just came out with their new, you know, their new headset, right? So 3500 bucks. Well, if nobody buys their headset, obviously they don't have any earnings off that headset, right? So you know, what we do as consumers and as businesses, that's what drives these corporate revenues. So if we don't have stronger economic growth, which means we're making more money, then we won't be spending as much money in the economy, in the economy which makes these earnings expectations very hard to achieve. And so, you know, this is going to be the real challenge because, you know, a lot of people right now are still predicting, hey, we're going to have a recession. We're going to, we, we got to have a recession. All these things say we have to have a recession. But, if, if we're going to have stronger earnings growth, then that suggests that we're not going to have a recession, that earnings act, that the economy actually gets stronger from here. So the point is, is there's a real dichotomy between, and this is the Trojan horse, right? 
um, analysts are going, hey, don't worry about it. Earnings are going to go up from here. Um, it's kind of like Greeks bearing gifts. Uh, be careful of what's inside those numbers because the, the reality is, is that this is all going to come down to what happens within the economy uh, over the course of the next six, eight, 12 months. Okay. And as you said, that article is packed full with charts. Folks should go read the article on your website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Um, see, I gave the plug this week, Lance. Thank you. Appreciate um, it. <laughs> but I do want to talk to one chart there in particular where um, you're showing how far ahead earnings estimates are from economic realities right now. And you, you, you basically show the actual um, uh, growth in earnings uh, with projected es estimates there in the, the dotted red line. Um, but then you have the earnings growth trend line and uh, EPS growth rate, you know, lower and higher bounds. And you can you can basically see that right now the forward earning estimates through 2024 are ab above the high highest bound, right? I mean, they've yeah. they've so just just talk to yeah. So how, much, that, how how much of an extreme is this? Yeah. So what that graph shows is so when you take a look at, at the long term history of, of of earnings, and just for a moment, this will make you know, again, going back to this premise, earnings have to come from economic activity. So if we go back to 1900, the economy's grown at about 6%. If we look at earnings growth, it's about 6.5%, 6.7% over time. There are periods like coming out of a recession where earnings can grow faster than the economy, but over time, and now this is the chart that you're looking at, that you're showing here, is that from peak to peak, of earnings. So from one earnings peak to the next earnings peak, earnings grow at about 6% on average, which is about what you would expect from economic growth. So there's this correlation between earnings growth and economic growth, exactly what you would expect. The long-term trend line, of course, is that exponential growth trend of earnings over time. And, and when you get very deviated above that exponential long-term growth trend, then ultimately, because of economic growth, because of recessions, because of periods of economic slowdown, earnings have to revert back towards that long-term exponential growth trend. And then from bottom to bottom, in other words, from earnings trough to earnings trough, that's about 5% over that long-term same horizon. So you've got this very defined kind of channel that earnings tend to stay well-contained in going all the way back to, to 1950. Um, you know, the problem now is, is that expectations are above any previous level of expectations of, or of actual growth we've ever had within the economy. So there's a lot of room for disappointment here that we should see earnings contract back towards that long-term exponential growth trend because that's what the economy actually generates over time. I, I feel like I kind of ask you a version of this question every week, but like, <laughs> what is driving that optimism? Right. So you know, analysts aren't stupid. They can see the same chart. They, they know that they're out of the, the, the regular bounds right, of history. What, 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 what is telling, making them feel confident that, oh, you know what? No, I, I actually think we're going to hit that number for reason X. What is reason X? Well, they don't actually, they, they don't actually think that. Right. Um, what analysts do is they say, OK, earnings grow at five percent on some basis. Right. So they go quarter of a quarter. We should have earnings grow at two and a half percent or three percent. They 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 have their number, and so they just go. And if you take a look at S S P does this as well. They go, okay, here's our estimates going forward over the next you know uh, eight quarters, and if you run a percentage change on that, it's about two two and a half percent. And they just they just basically mathematically you know just run a line out and say, okay, earnings are going to improve, and and there's the number. 
And then as, and this is what we always know is, is that as we start to approach that quarter, they walk it down. Numbers start coming down, right? Yeah. And we see these big downward revisions and then we all beat the number and everybody's like, yay, we beat analyst estimates. Well, we, we haven't beat analyst estimates in 20 years. If you actually use their initial estimates, the market never beats those estimates. They only beat the ones that we lower the bar enough to let them get over. And that's a good example of this last quarter. Okay. All right. Well, it'll be interesting to see what happens, but obviously folks, you know, um, extremes are called extremes for a reason, right? They tend to not persist. So the market seems to be priced right now um, at an extreme in forward earnings expectations. Take that what you will. Um, now, obviously, Lance, um, what's going to bring those earnings down and bring potential asset prices down is declining earnings, right? Disappointing earnings based upon these expectations, even the, the downward revised expectations. So I got a bunch of stuff that is sort of like recessionary, uh, you know, storm clouds, and, and we'll wade through some of it. But there's 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 something on my list here that that may, uh, you know, it's an argument on the other side that those storm clouds might not matter. Um, I'm going to start getting into that discussion through the doorway of debt. I just want to put up a chart here real quick. Um, from Wolf Richter, which uh, is showing that um, you know now that the debt ceiling's been raised, you know now it's game on uh, to take on more debt. And uh, he's got a chart here that shows that the U.S. national debt spiked by 359 billion on the first day after the debt ceiling was removed. Um, so uh, you know that's that's almost a third of a trillion. It takes more than a third of a trillion bucks. Uh, that just got bang, you know, added right onto the debt right after, you know, the handshake agreement was made. Um, and by, so, the way, by the way, you just hit a really important point and don't gloss over it. Okay. We added $300 billion in debt. And you know, remember what everybody was saying was that, oh my gosh, as soon as this debt ceiling's done, the whole, you know, everything's going to go to hell in a handbasket because we've got to refund the treasury this trillion dollars. We've already done $300 billion of it and the market didn't blink. Um, we did a $140 billion auction on T-bills. Market absorbed it without a hitch. Um, there is so much demand from money market accounts right now that the absorption of that increased debt is not going to be a problem. It's something we talked about last week. But again- I, I, and I, do, I do underscore that you did say you didn't yeah. think it was going to be an issue because of that. Yeah. Right. And, and so this is you're seeing it happen right now. The market's not the market doesn't care because they the market already knows that this is not going to be an issue. Go ahead. Okay. So um but a but very good point. And I'm glad I got a chance to shine a light on your your accurate prediction there that you, you didn't think that the TGA ref, refill uh was going to create uh this market dyspepsia that many people thought. And I I I'll admit I was one of the people that was a bit worried about it. Um, I guess the only thing I'll say is, is there's still more to go. So we'll see. The, the, the opera isn't <laughs> it's, over it's yet. Last, that it's, it's the last hundred billion. It's going to blow everything up. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll see. But you're right. It hasn't mattered at all so far. But the point is, is, you know, we're, we're, we're already, you know, aggressively adding debt back on, you know, uh, you know, as fast as we can at this point. That's it's, you know, there's a, there was a time where a third, third of a trillion of debt was a big deal. Um, all right. So um, the the thing that uh, and 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 one of the things Wolf flagged was, hey, look, we're 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 throwing all this debt back on. We're now starting to refill the TGA. QT is still going on. You know, there's liquidity draining that, that's going on here. Um, 
And this is this is where I've really been on this journey for the past couple of months here is really trying to get an understanding of you know how to measure liquidity. You know, there are all these different liquidity measures. You and I have talked about it. You guys produce your own chart there at, at, at RIA. Um, there's a Bloomberg article um, that talks about um, rising excess liquidity in the way that they measure it. Uh, I'll get a chart. I'll, I'll put the chart up here if I can find it. Um, but basically what they're saying is um, something that I think you were saying recently, Lance, um, which is... Uh, one of the reasons why stocks have been able to perform so well this year is because there has been net excess liquidity into the system. And yes, there are lots of macroeconomic, you know, there's lots of macro, um, macroeconomic weakness out there. But if the flood of excess liquidity is big enough and can persist for long enough, it may be able to keep prices from having to materially come down, asset prices to materially having to come down. And it may give the economy enough time to heal that by the time that excess liquidity goes to net zero, the economy is, is actually performing pretty well again. And so the people who have been so concerned about recessions, and again, I'll put myself in that camp, could be disappointed here that we may have a soft or no landing because the excess liquidity is providing such a buffer that it it becomes the bridge from one period of economic growth to the next period of economic growth without having to go through the trough of the recession. Well, yeah, and, and, and this is something we've talked about before. Take a look at M2 as a percentage of GDP. It's still very high. Um, depending on how you calculate household savings, that's very high. Um, you know, so, so again, this, you know, this problem that everybody was expecting of this drain of liquidity that was going to have this big impact, it hasn't occurred. And, and you know, another thing that's also helped, and we talked about this, you and I talked about this two or three weeks ago, we talked about rolling recessions. I wrote a newsletter on this on our website, talking about how we were having this rolling recession over the last, you know, 18 months, where, you know, everybody was expecting this, this moment to where like the floor fell out of everything, right? You had this big kind of apocalyptic moment and stocks were going to be down 30, 40, 50% and, you know, kind of reminiscent of 2008. But what happened instead was, is that we had all the events that everybody was talking about and that we were talking about happened, right? We said, hey, look, you know, if you keep hiking rates, you're going to have some type of credit related event, a banking crisis or something. Uh, if you keep doing this, you're going to have you know, uh, you know, problems, you know, with certain sectors of the market. And, you know, and, and what happened was, is that as you look back, we had all those events, right? They all occurred. We had, you know, the IPO blow up. We had the SPAC blow up. Um, we had the meme stock blow up. We, we had uh, Silicon Valley Bank. We had the, the regional bank, but they were all spaced out. And so we would have these hits. The markets would decline 15% or so. Market would absorb it. And then start to rally again. Then we'd have the next event. Market would sell off. We'd absorb it. The market would rally again. And then we'd have the next event and absorb it. And so that's kind of that rolling recession took, you know, kind of took some of the sting out of the crash. You know, if you kind of think about like a shock absorber, right? And, and you know, if a car has no shock absorbers and it runs into a wall, it's just, you know, terrible. But if you have this kind of ability for the, the hood to crumple and have these shock absorbers, it softens that blow. And that's kind of what's happened with this rolling recession in the economy. 
that really it hasn't materialized. And, and I've got a chart, I've got a, uh, an article coming out next Friday, I think. Um, but I'm going through all the recession indicators again. And there's certainly a lot of indicators suggesting we should have a recession. But if you take a look at ISM, um, manufacturing versus services, that's suggesting that we're not there yet. And whenever services have not been in contraction, but manufacturing has, we've had this kind of no recession scenario, 2011, 2015, 1998. Um, those were all periods where services were not in contraction, but manufacturing was, and we didn't have a official recession until much later. Um, you, you know, what's interesting about this is, is we're at this period of time, and, and I'm getting lots of comments about this from viewers of these videos where they're like, oh, I'm really having a hard time because this expert said this, but this expert said this, that was different. And, and you know, your people you're talking to aren't agreeing. And I mean, one, <laughs> we, we talked to six different people a week on this channel. I mean, not everyone's going to agree about everything, obviously, but I think we're at a really challenging time right now where like, I don't think many people have a ton of confidence in, in much of what they're predicting because there's so much up in the air right now. It's just, it's a really hard data set to predict with confidence. Um, uh, you know, talking to Peter Bookvar earlier this week, he's he's still not 100% confident we're going to have a recession. I think he said he's 99.99%, so he left a <laughs> tiny bit of window open there. But he <laughs> said- There's that, a chance. <laughs> yeah, there's a chance. Um, but he said it's probably not going to be an event, right? It's not going to be like, uh, oh, my gosh, there's a sudden market correction or, oh, my gosh, the economy just plunges into recession. He he talked about it more of just like a steady grind, right? Yeah. Just a just a steady grind downwards. Um, so um, so that's, you know, that, that's one potential outcome here. And I, I hear you saying that a, a little bit here, like, yeah. I mean, we're talking, we, there's a chance we could avoid recession. I still think I have a hard time wrapping my brain around it. So it's not my primary thesis, but I'm open to the fact that it could happen. Um, but because of this shock absorbency that, that you know, the liquidity is providing and because these things are well-spaced enough. And, and when I talked to um, Joseph Wang, uh, Fed guy, the guy who used to be, uh, you know, he used to be one of the traders at the Fed. Um, he, he did say... Many months ago, he said the Fed wasn't super worried about um, the impacts of its its hiking campaign because it felt it kind of had the monetary duct tape to hold everything together enough so that by the time it achieved its objective, it could come in and really do the repair. But it was it wasn't worried about the system just kind of blowing apart. You know, TBD. We'll see. Like I said, the the opera isn't over yet. The fat lady may still take the stage on that. <laughs> Um, but you know, th there's enough in there that for the folks that were, are just have been so rock solid that the wheels are going to come off, they still may, but it may take a lot longer than we think. And they may not like all come off at once. It, it might be, you know, a, a, a slower breakdown of the car versus a slamming into some sort of wall. So yeah. we'll see, but I, I, I just, I want to give you a chance to opine on this because as we talk about, you know, people get so set on, well, surely this is going to happen. And we just have to keep ourselves open to that other opportunities may happen. And and we're seeing such a divergent right now, divergence among experts on what exactly may happen. I think you you especially have to keep an open mind right now. Right. And look, and, and it's a great point. And, and I need to, now I need to, if you'll let me share screens. Yeah, you should have the. Okay. Um, before I do that. So a couple of points. Um, first of all, nobody should agree. 
right? And so if you're listening to whenever, here, here's a good piece of advice for you. If you're ever listening to Wealthion and everybody agrees, then you need to watch something else as well, because nobody ever knows more than about three days out what's going to ultimately happen in the economy. So if you're, if you're listening and, and, if, and there's an old saying, right, Bob Farrell, one of the greatest you know, uh, technical uh, technicians uh, in, you know, in history, worked for Merrill Lynch for, for years, has a series of 10 kind of rules to follow to invest. One of his rules is, is when all experts agree, something else tends to happen. Yeah. Right. And so it's, it's an important, so it's good. Right. So when your viewers are watching this channel and you're getting this, this disparity of opinions, that's a good thing. Right. You should be thinking, OK, well, this guy said this. How could he be wrong? And this guy said this. What could make him wrong? And this is the challenge of investing. That's also what makes a market. You've got to have buyers and sellers. If everybody agrees, you don't have a market. So, you know, this is this is a very important point about consuming information is to make sure we talk about confirmation bias all the time is, is not to have confirmation bias. And again, if you read our articles on our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, um, uh, Adam makes fun of me because one, one article will be super bearish. The next article will be bullish. The next article will be bearish. Next article is bullish. And that's us going through this same analysis of, of trying to, to work through this, this market and environment that we're in because there is a lot of negative data. There's also a lot of positive supportive data. And you've got to try to figure out which one is going to dominate. So having said that, I do want to talk about recession real quick, because one of the anomalies that 2020 caused was in economic growth. And so what is a recession, right? So no, not what is a woman, what is a recession? <laughs> Let's talk about that for a second. Um, a recession is only two things. It either in a recession or it's not a recession. There's no other measures of that. So a recession is when you have negative economic growth, okay? Now, what is negative economic growth? That doesn't mean the world is collapsing, right? That, that's not what that means at all. What it means is, is that last year, the economy was growing at a dollar. This year, it's a negative dollar decline, so you have a recession. So it's just very basic. However, to get from growth to negative growth, you have to deteriorate all of that positive growth, right? So we've got it. So think about, um, I'm going to go from the top of the hill to sea level into a valley that is below sea level. So before I can get to zero or sea level, I've got to go all the way down that mountain, right? Now I'm at, now I'm at sea level. I've already gone down a thousand feet, right? I'm already a thousand feet down off the hill and I'm still at sea level. Now I've got to go into the valley right? Before I get into this recession. Now, let me show you a chart. And this will help you understand why this has been a very challenging period. Okay, this is, this is economic growth. This is GDP at a quarterly change at an annual rate. And this is real. This is real GDP. So it's inflation adjusted. What you'll see here is that here's the last recession that we had in 2020. We were growing at about two and a half percent. And so when we shut down the economy, we had to go from positive two and a half percent growth to zero and then into negative territory. We were down negative eight percent on an inflation adjusted basis. Let's go back to 2008 for a second. Let's just talk about the financial crisis. 
Back in the financial crisis, we had to go from about 3% growth down to zero, and then we went down about negative 4% on a real rate. Now let's go back to 1999, 2000. In 2001 and two, we went from about 5% growth to zero. We actually never got into recession, but we declared a recession because of what was going on with employment, et cetera. But actual economic growth on an inflate, now nominal GDP was negative. But on an inflation-adjusted basis, it was not. And we still had a recession. But overall, if you go back and look at 1999, 2000, 2001, 2002, small caps did well, mid caps did well. The only thing that really sucked in terms of investing and, and the economy was what was happening in the dot-com stocks. Those all blew up. That's why you had a recession, because you had all those layoffs, et cetera. But now let's go forward and let's talk about where we are right now. We just came off a period of 12% inflation-adjusted economic growth. Now, everybody's expecting this declaration of a recession and go, oh my gosh, we've got this recession. We just had to wipe out a 12, we've gone from 12% growth, we're down to about 1% growth on a real basis. We're not to zero yet, but we've already wiped out more in inflation-adjusted growth than we did during the pandemic decline. We've wiped out more economic growth on an inflation-adjusted basis than we did during the financial crisis. So this is why it's so confusing. Yes, we still have positive economic growth, but you've got to realize that we have dramatically slowed economic growth within the economy over the last 18 months to get it to where it is now. So this is, this is the frustrating part. Will this eventually go negative? Maybe. But it is possible because of all this decline that we've already had in economic growth, because it's already slowed down this much, that we may kind of have a repeat on an inflation, again, inflation adjusted basis, not nominal, that we could theoretically see something like we saw back in 2001 and two, where real economic growth gets around zero. We do see a pickup in unemployment. We do declare a recession, but it's very mild. But again, that really doesn't take away what we've already done in terms of slowing economic growth. So does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. It's it's uh, we, we the the descent, the decline that we've had is um, greater than we've had in any of these previous cycles you're talking about there. And it's yeah. almost sort of like, you know, this time around, we decided the, the mountain we were going to come down from was Mount Everest. Right? <laughs> so we, we said the longest distance to travel before we got to sea level. Yeah. So that's actually really, really helpful, which is that we we may not get to a point where we see negative real uh, GDP growth, um, even though there is a lot of growth destruction in there. And, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, charts are helpful and all that stuff. You know, what, what, what I want to keep in mind is just like, but but what's going to matter for the real person? Like, how are they going to experience this? Are they going to see any material decline in their portfolios or not? Are they going to potentially lose their job or not, right? I mean, the things that that we as regular people really care the most about. So we'll get into that because I've got a bunch of stats here that we're going to go through. Um, you just you, you gave me, though, an, an opportunity to just clarify something because of, of a number of the comments that I've been getting recently, uh, especially as the markets have been getting increasingly bullish. You know, there are people who are saying, hey, you know, you had this this expert on who's, you know, six months ago was warning about a recession. We haven't had it yet. So, you know, how can I trust anything that's on this channel? And, you know, you made a lot of my point for me, which is, look, this channel is to bring in the most credible, thoughtful, data-driven, respectable analysts that we can find and let you crawl in their brain. We're not trying to create an echo chamber here. We're trying to get 
a diverse, rich set of, of thinkers in here so that you can listen to each one and then decide what to do. And so just to be super crystal clear for people, my job as the, the proprietor of this channel is to try to bring on the best minds that I can get on this channel and to bring out their story as fully as possible, to get you as fully into their mind and their thoughts as I can so that you have real clarity on what they're thinking. Your job as the viewer is to determine whose outlooks resonate the most with you, make the most sense to you, and that you want to use as guidance for steps that you want to take from, from here, right? So that's kind of the partnership that we have going together here is, is the guy that's that's producing the content and you, the viewer, who's deciding what to do on it. Um, as Lance said, you know, uh, I, I'm not trying to bring in a lot of people, even though people say, oh, you have a lot of bearish people on the channel. It's not like I'm calling people on the phone and saying, hey, are you bearish? Great. Come on my channel. <laughs> I'm just saying, come on my channel. You're a respected analyst. They come on. You know, I, I don't know what they're going to say when I ask them these questions. And the, the right now, you know, the preponderance of them have been concerned about where things are going for all the reasons we discuss on this channel. Are a lot of them surprised right now? To a certain extent, although you look, you talk to guys like David Rosenberg or, or Lakshman uh, Achuthan, who I had on you know, both last week, both of them are, are relatively pessimistic, probably Rosenberg a little bit more about where things are going, but both of them said, I'm not surprised at all with what's going on right now, because if you look at past cycles, this is the pattern that you expect to see. You oftentimes see stocks rallying into a recession. You oftentimes see, you know, the employment numbers, you know, continuing, uh, you know, unemployment continuing to be strong as you as you head into the recession once it's been declared retroactively, right? Yeah. So a lot of this stuff, you know, while it feels paradoxical to us, to a lot of experienced folks, it's it, it's not. Now, are they going to be proven right? I don't know. But my point is, is, you know, again, my job is to to get the full picture of these analysts when they come on. Your job as the viewer is to actually figure out what you want to do with that. Yeah. All right. Just, um, just real, yeah. real quick just on that note, because it, it, it's, it's, it's a very critical point, because, again, this is, you know, what I try to do on Friday. I don't know why you have me on this channel, because obviously, you know, I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but, <laughs> you know, the issue is, 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 you know, every week we talk about this stuff and you know, I'm, and as I keep saying, nobody knows what's going to happen. So if you listen to a guy and he says, this is going to happen. And this, and this is the thing about the bearish case. The bearish case is always very logical. And it makes a ton of sense because it's based on historical data. It's based on, uh, you know, past trends. It's based on what happened previously. It's based on, and, and again, we've done a lot of that same work here. You know, looking back over history, say whenever this and this has occurred, this is what's typically happened. And the bearish case, as human beings, right, we have an innate nature of self-preservation, right? So, you know, we have the, we have the, you know, the, the, the base, the base tenets of, of our nature is, you know, feed, flee, you know, fight, those type of things. Right. So we have a, a very base need of self-preservation. And so we tend to gravitate as humans, we tend to gravitate towards that bearish view not because it's right or wrong, but because it, it, it feeds into that innate preservation mode of how we think psychologically. And this is the big challenge for investors is to, to understand that. And, and this is why it's always hard to buy bottoms, right? To buy the bottom of the market. You know, everything's falling apart. And, you know, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to buy low, but 
we don't buy low because, well, everything's bad, right? So self-preservation says, you don't buy here, it's going to zero. We buy the peaks because at that point, it's like, well, I can't stop going up from here. So I'm going to buy NVIDIA today, right? At 40 times price of sales. So we do exactly the opposite of what we should do as investors because that's the way our psychology is. But just understand that when you listen to, to Mr. X over here and he says, okay, based on all my data, um, you know, housing's going to do X, auto sales are going to do Y, whatever it is. Um, and this has always led to bad, bad outcomes previously. He's right. The problem is, is that we can't predict what happens in the future. And again, we've gone through all this before, you know, the best predictors on the planet are meteorologists and they're right three days in advance. Outside of that, if you're predicting anything six months, nine months, a year from now, that is probably not going to happen. And there's a reason, you know, for that to occur. The reason we haven't had a recession and the reason the market hasn't done what you would expect it to do with the Fed hiking rates and doing all these types of things is because everybody was expecting a recession last year, right? We had, it was recession mania all of last year. And, and when you have that type of psychology in the market and it's public and everybody's reading this, everybody's talking about it. And this is, this is Bob Farrell's rule. When all experts agree, something else happens. And the reason is, because the market adapts to that view and it says, okay, earnings and valuations are here. That's priced in that view. So if anything else occurs that is not worse than that view, if it comes in a little bit better, markets are going to start to rally. And that's what you've seen occur since October. The worst of that recession view was priced in last October and the markets are rallying off of that. Now what we have to have in order to have another downturn is the actual, so now everybody's very optimistic, right? No recession, soft landing. Now, if you start to have the, the unexpected view, which would be a sharper slowdown within the economy, the market is not priced for that now. Nobody's talking about a recession in the mainstream media now. It's, it's, that's pretty much passe. Nobody wants to, all the bulls are back. So now the market is in a better position to have a decline on worse than expected expectations in earnings and economic growth, et cetera, which could occur over the next six, 12 months. So again, this is how markets work. And this is why you always have to be careful. Just because somebody said X last year doesn't mean they're entirely wrong. They're just wrong for right now because that view was already priced in by the markets. Does that make sense? It to totally makes sense. Um, and we'll move on from this point because um, I'm going to go through a bunch of bearish bits, bits of data. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. we're telling people. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, I, I do want to, to underscore what, what you're saying and I'm trying to convey here. Um, there's a quote by uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald, the, the author, um, that says, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function, right? And I think that that's a great quote for an investor, right? Is, yeah. is you have to take these sort of competing interpretations of the same data and be able to say, okay, look, you know, uh, you know, these are both two intelligent, you know, forecasts of what could go on. One of them may be right or the other, or maybe they're both going to be wrong and something entirely different is going to happen. But my job is to try to consider them all, understand them all, and then do my own calculus to determine which one I think is most probable, because then I can take action based off of that. Um, I also just wanted to say too, um, Ed Yardini, 
right? Would you call him a bull or a bear? Oh, super bullish. He's okay. all bull. He's coming on the channel next week. Awesome. Yeah, so we'll, we'll definitely get to hear the Super Bowl, uh, Super yeah. Bowl uh, perspective. Soon. I, I've, I've, I've been with him a couple of times on Fox Business. And yeah, he's always the he's the always the commensurate Uber Bull. So you'll, you'll, okay. you'll enjoy it. he's a very smart guy. You, you will definitely love his analysis. He's very well spoken. Yeah. He's um, a great chart producer. You know, he, yeah. He, so um, so anyways, uh, you know, again, and I and I, 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 I brought him on less that he's a bull though that that was you know, a, a selling point because they're harder to get than the bears. But um, but also just, again, a guy who has a lot of data, but interprets it differently than a lot of other people do right now. So really looking forward to that discussion. Um, okay, so um, uh, I, I just want to dial through some of these things that are some of the storm clouds I mentioned. Now, you know, the, the, the rising net liquidity may make these things moot, who knows? Um, but definitely there's been some developments that I think are just worth pointing out here quickly. One, uh, you mentioned services. Uh, the services numbers have been pointed to of late as a real source of resilience in the economy. Um, we got some new services data out uh, this week uh, that was disappointing. Uh, the global services, uh, the global S&P global U.S. services PMI that printed at 5.4, uh, sorry, 54.9 in May. Um, which is still, you know, an expansion, but it, it, it was a miss of expectation. Um, ISM services printed at 50.3, just barely above contraction. Um, and that uh, that's, you know, a low for a good while here. And that that caught the market by surprise. So, you know, these these this one month of uh, data points doesn't make a trend yet, but it is it is showing that services, you know, may not be as, as red hot as, as folks are thinking. Um, I'm going to move on to GDI. Anything to say about services? Uh, actually, yeah. Let me uh, steal your um, graph again. Uh, let me steal your screen again, real quick, and I'll share a couple of charts uh, because this is a very important point, and this is something that, uh, like I said, I'm discussing some of the recession indicators uh, next week. But um, this is, uh, and this is this is an important uh, analysis. So this is ISM services versus the manufacturing index, and this is what I was talking about earlier. So if you take a look at services, which is the red line, the black line is the manufacturing index. The only time that you have recession is when both of them are in contractionary territory right now. And right now, services are not in contraction. Now, the important point about this is that- They're, they're close though, just to be clear. <laughs> they're very, no, they're very close, but they're not there yet. And, and again, that's why you know, probably we have not seen that kind of recession at the moment. And again, it doesn't mean that we're not going to, but we just haven't ha haven't seen it yet. But but there's also kind of a, another point about this is that when you take a look at services as a function, they are roughly about 77% um, of the economy. And, and so this is this is important because services have the ability to uh, hold on, your picture's right in the way of my my street. Uh, so this chart is IS. This is a composite index of ISM and services. Um, Seventy-seven percent of the economy is services, and about the other twenty-three percent is manufacturing. Now, manufacturing has a much higher, what we call a multiplier effect within the economy. So when we manufacture something, um, think about building a house for a moment. We're going to manufacture a house. 
um, I've got to go, you know, hire the architect and I've got to get the engineers involved. And then I've got to hire the construction and I've got to buy the, the, the you know, the lumber and the, 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 you know, everything to build the house with the sheetrock, uh, the, the roofing tiles, et cetera. Then I've got to buy the appliances. And, and so the, the point is, is that building a house has a lot of throughput into the economy because all these other things have to be bought, have to be bought which create jobs and revenue for all these other companies. And so manufacturing has a very big input, but it's a very small fraction of our economy today versus where it was back in the 1970s when it was about 80% of our economy. And that's why we were growing at 8% uh, back in the late 70s. Services, on the other hand, have a very low multiplier effect. If, you know, if I, if I hire an Uber driver, right, I pay him for the ride and then that's done, right? Yes, he buys some gas, but that's about it. There's not this big multiplier effect in the economy that comes out of services. So if I economically weight the index, services versus manufacturing. So in this, this is a composite. So in, in this composite, ISM services make up 77% of the index, 23% is manufacturing. What you see here is that when previously, the long-term capital management back in 98, the Japan shut down in 2011, when last time we had a debt ceiling default, the US debt downgrade, the Euro Brexit crisis we had, Manufacturing was in negative territory, but the index, this economically weighted index, was never even close. And so we didn't have a recession. When we had the dot-com crash, financial crisis, pandemic shutdown, that composite index was deeply into that recession territory. Now, we're right on the cusp of that now. So if services continue to weaken over the course of the next several months or, or later this year, we will have a recession. This is part of that that you know, recession article I'm writing, uh, you know, on the website coming up. Right. But, 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 or, or if manufacturing continues weakening because it has a higher influence impact in this chart. That, that is correct. And it will drag that down further. But again, you know, right now, the, but the, the point is, is that the reason we haven't had a recession yet is twofold. One, see how high that, that, that index was back in 2021. Yeah, again, we're back, back at the top of Everest. Yeah. 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 So we had to go from Everest to zero. Um, and we're just now there. So again, you know, I think there's a real possibility that we could see a recessionary environment uh, later this year that will slow earnings, that is going to pressure stocks. That doesn't mean we're going to have a, a massive, you know, market meltdown, but a 10 to 15% decline in stocks would not be surprising at all. Um, I think it'll be a hell of a buying opportunity when that occurs. But I do think there's some risk to earnings over the course of this year and into next year. All right, um, great, and I'm, I'm I'm really glad you went into this because I was going to bring up that that Lachman, um had talked about how uh, manufacturing in his mind he he puts the the multiplier at about six times services. Yeah. So he says you you really can't discount the fact that manufacturing is a much smaller percent of the economy because it punches so far above its weight relative to services. And as you know, manufacturing is is in contraction right now, pretty solidly. That's great. Um, I'm so All impressed right. that you can actually pronounce his name correctly. That's pretty, it's like wash your sister sauce. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although I grew up in New England, we call it Worcester sauce. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So, um, so kind of on a related note, um, uh, David Rosenberg, and we don't have time to spend a ton of time on this, but um, he looks at, um, you know, he says, look, you know, Yes, uh, GD. We haven't had. We're we're not having negative quarters of GDP right now, 
He actually thinks that's a little bit of a false um, indicator. He likes to look at um, an index he's created called GD Plus, which is basically kind of an average of GD, uh, GDP and GDI, uh, gross domestic income. Gross domestic income has had two back-to-back -back negative quarters. Um, and so when he calculates GD Plus, I believe that that has been negative for the past two quarters. So he, by that metric, he says, we're actually in a recession now. And that's part of Dave's story is, is he says, I think we actually might be in a recession now. We just don't know it yet necessarily. And it's going to get declared later on at some point in time. And he's like, when it does, if they say we were in it at this point in time, you know, June, 2023, he's like, I'm not going to be surprised at all. Um, all right, moving into a couple of things before we get to the really fun stuff to talk about. Um, uh, I just want to quickly mention jobs. Um, initial claims uh, took a pretty substantial jump. Um, again, you know, too early to really be waving too many warning signs about this, but the, the, the clear trajectory of claims, both initial and continuing at this point in time, you know, is, is on the way upwards from here. We clearly bottomed last fall. Um, you know, we keep hearing stories about layoffs and all that type of stuff. Um, we're not at the warning level yet where guys like Michael Kantrowitz are saying, okay, this is it. The, the employment domino is falling, but watching the trajectory, which we're going to continue doing, it is continuing to move towards the, the direction of higher unemployment. Um, and they're really interesting, um, hires and quits are trending lower now. And what that really means is um, uh, that labor... Uh, leverage is declining. So here's a chart here of the leverage, the the labor leverage ratio, and you you can see that it's it's in decline now. And this is a really clear indicator that um, the the power dynamic shifting, right? So um, during uh, the pandemic, uh, coming kind of coming out of the pandemic, where everybody was flush and everybody's uh, retirement accounts had had you know recovered and we're doing great and everybody realized they could work from anywhere they wanted to and live van life and all that stuff we had you know massive quits right quits went through the roof the huge you know, there was a huge take this job and shove it factor we had a lot of people retire early um and we've had this massive gap now in openings versus job openings versus um applicants for them right um and, and employees have been able to do that because employers have been so short for workers that that folks could pretty much sort of name their price and their conditions and and they had the the financial padding uh, to to go off and take a couple of months and do whatever they wanted to do or longer, right? Um, well, now we're seeing that you know personal savings rates you know gone back to near record lows and and everyone's having to finance their life now on the credit card. Um, and it's beginning to manifest here in this jobs data, which is just that the workers are beginning to have less and less bargaining power. And of course, if we get into a place where, you know, layoffs really start accelerating from here, we get into recession, the power dynamic could could really shift fast back to the employer um, part. And I've, I've been warning about this for a long time, really for about two years now, that the great resignation movement may be morphing into the great please may I have my job back movement. Um, we're not quite there yet, but but definitely that that uh, decline in labor leverage ratio shows that. Um, anything on jobs before I get to housing, Lance? Well, no, I mean, look, jobless claims are, are definitely taking up, but they're still low on a relative basis. Um, you know, we're not above 300,000. Once you get above 300,000 in jobless claims, now we got something to talk about. Um, okay. And but, we'll keep tracking, like I said. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, they are moving up. So, you know, that's the important thing. You know, the thing to really watch there on jobless claims is continuing claims. Um, how people, how many people are staying unemployed? That's the that's the bigger issue. 
But you know, you're you're absolutely right on the employment front. Um, employers are having a lot more bargaining power now, and it is interesting to start to see. You know, people are job hopping. They've said they've had to stop job hopping, and all of a sudden now, companies even like Google are saying, "Hey, you want to work for us? You're coming back to the office." Yep. So. Yeah. So I I I I think it's worth just beating this dead horse one more time in the sense of like, if you work for a paycheck. Um, if you are dependent upon your employer here, um, you know, looking at the, the trajectory of, of this data, um, you should just be asking yourself, okay, you know, um, do I have a plan B in case my company, you know, starts um, either, you know, actually issuing pink slips, but even just reducing hours, asking me to do more for the same pay, that type of stuff. If we keep heading on this trajectory, I think the likelihood of, of those types of developments is going up. Um, all right. On the housing side, um, I, again, I mean, there's just so much to talk about with housing, but I'm going to keep it super contained here. Um, data from, uh, uh, well, CNBC article, um, but the, the data basically shows that the housing market has never been this unaffordable for new buyers, right? So from a, a purchasing uh, perspective, um, the, the costs are so high in terms of um home prices still near record highs, seven plus percent mortgage rates, and then just all the fees that are in the system right now, it has literally never been more expensive for a new buyer, or, or, or sorry, more importantly, less affordable for a new buyer to get into a house at this point. So that helps. Unless what? Unless you have bad credit, right? Now you've got, you got this new fee. If you've got good credit, <laughs> you're even paying more. So <laughs> you know, it's better to go in with no cash and bad credit. You can get, you can get a better deal on a house. Yeah, you know, look, you know, housing housing is not corrected as much as everybody thought, except in certain areas. There, there are certain areas, but like you know, like I said in Houston, housing prices haven't corrected that much. So it's all about location. Is always the case. It's all about location, and you know, I do hear a lot of people say like, "Well, hey, I don't I keep hearing this, but like in my area, the houses are still going for above asking." Absolutely, because your mileage is. Local mileage will definitely vary in the housing market story, right? Because it, it's so local. But um, you know, for every story like that, there are stories of oh my gosh, you know, we've seen some pretty substantial price declines in our market here, and, and notably two headlines: um, U.S. home buyers see uh, or U.S. homeowners uh, see first annual home equity losses since 2012 in the first quarter of 2023. So we actually are now seeing enough uh, house pricing declines across the country that there actually has been a decline in home equity for the first time in over over a decade, right? So it is beginning to, to bite. Same thing in uh, the UK, um, US house prices book first annual drop since 2012, right? So this is beginning to happen, you know, in it's not just a US story, it's, it's, it's a worldwide story. In fact, I think the UK is probably gonna see it worse and, and faster, probably same with Canada, because the U.S. is relatively unique in that, you know, we have all these 30-year mortgages where most other countries' uh, mortgages reset every five years. So pretty much every year you're getting a resetting uh, of the market. Um, so anyways, that's just, we could talk about this forever. But important thing is there's just some really big indicators there where, you know, there are, there are a lot of people out there still saying, I don't think we're really going to have a housing market correction. Look, the data is showing that it actually is really beginning to start. And when you have prices at record levels of unaffordability, you can't be surprised if, you know, buyers just aren't showing up to continue to pay the current prices. Well, and again, you know, just, just, you know, you got to be cautious with that. Again, it's, it is about location. 
Um, and, and, and there's also this other, there's also this other anomaly that's kind of going on also, which is there's not a lot of inventory in existing homes. And the reason is, is that because mortgage rates are so high, why would I sell my house at, you know, a 3% mortgage to go buy a new house at a 7% mortgage, right? So this is keeping a lot of potential sellers out of the market, which for the few sellers that are in the market on existing homes, they're able to ask for higher prices because there's, there's just not enough inventory for that. So there is this supply demand imbalance on the existing home side. Um, new home. Ab absolutely. And that, that is kind of unique right now where the Fed, I talked about this at depth with Peter Bookfire, like the Fed has basically marooned a huge swath of American homeowners, That's right? Correct. Where even if, even if they're realizing that, hey, my home price has gone down, well, I'm, I, I'm not going to sell because I've got this cheap mortgage. And, I, and even if I move and get a lower priced house, given the mortgage rates, it's still a lot more expensive than what I'm paying for right now, right? Yeah, um, downsizing, but, downsizing isn't an option right now. Well, but what's so interesting about this is, is you know, we, we, there is always going to be some organic transactions that have to happen, right? Yeah. You know, people get old, they die, they have to, we, we've talked about this on the average and so, uh, many times. So that will be the price discovery, right? It just may take longer this time around. But if we get into uh, like a real recession, like let's say there is a hard landing, right? What's also new this time around is you have a ton of, of houses that are owned out there by both institutions, but also people that have you know been buying multiple properties to Airbnb them out or just boomers that have been diversifying their retirement portfolio into you know investment property and whatnot. And you don't live in that. So when times are tight, well, that's the first thing you sell, right? So there is a potential inflection point here where it's resist, resist, resist. And then all of a sudden, you know, you start seeing tons of new inventory go on, right? So yeah. don't know for sure if that's going to happen, but it's certainly a potential, right? So like I said, we could talk about housing all day long. The only other thing I want to mention here on the commercial side is... Commercials are different story. <laughs> Pardon me? Commercial is a definitely different story. Commercial is a different problem. story, but this is just, just to make the point of, of, of how like... Price resets, big ones can happen, and they are starting to. You know, I'm out in the, the San Francisco Bay Area. We've had a couple of um, hotels here that have basically been jingle mailed back to the banks, right? Yeah. Um, where uh, Hilton, um, you know, basically, well, there have been, uh, so yeah, so, so uh, Hilton Hotel handed, I think, two hotel properties uh, back uh, to their lenders uh, just in the past couple of weeks. Um, and then two office buildings have sold recently. Um, one that was owned by Wells Fargo, one that was owned by Union Bank. They were sold for 70 to 75% below their last purchase price. No, I, you know, I told you before, I do a lot of distressed investing and do hard money lending and those type of things. And one of the guys I work with, um, just we, we're doing a deal right now on a building that had about $60 million in debt uh, to a couple of big major banks that just bought the property for 28 million. So, you know, there's gonna, and, and there's gonna be a conversion into, um, you know, out of office space into kind of livable retail. Residential, yeah. Residential apartments and, you know, retail stuff downstairs. It's gonna be a really neat opportunity. Um, return potential is fantastic, but to that point, there's a lot of that commercial real estate that is hitting the market at very, very distressed prices. There's some really great opportunities uh, in that space if you can find them. Yeah, and so look, um, and maybe we'll do a show at some point on commercial real estate. I mean, most of our viewers are you know, retail folks who aren't gonna go out and buy a 
you know, office building for $28 million and then renovate it. Uh, yeah. But they might want to participate in the syndicate for that if there's someone who's doing that. But but the, the point is, is this may be giving us some sort of view into the future. And I'm not saying that home prices are going to correct 70 to 75 percent, but but you may still see some pretty big price declines from here and be able to get some pretty phenomenal value if the market corrects. And of course, there's some of the reasons we mentioned that may buffer that, but but we'll see. But okay. but the trajectory is still more that uh, on the correction side of things. Okay, moving on to the next topic, which is um, uh, you know, we've talked many different times over the past couple of years about you know the twenty plus percent of the U.S. corporate fleet that's a zombie company, and and we have scratched our heads collectively that a lot of these companies were were having trouble you know surviving on their debt payments back when you know, the Fed funds rate was near zero and now it's above five, right? And we're like, how, how are these guys still staying alive, right? And I think as you've said, that the name of the game for a lot of these guys is, well, well the ones that, that you know, did capital raises, they're going to be okay until they have to uh, roll that debt over. And that might not be for another year or two or three, right? But we are now uh, beginning to see some signs of, of some dying off here. Bankruptcy filings so far in 2023 uh, are the highest they've been since 2010. Yep. Right. So we're beginning to really see some weakness here. Yeah, no. And, and uh, that debt wall um, for a lot of these smaller mid cap companies is in 2024. So we're going to see a, a bunch of refinancing need to happen next year. That's potentially where this is really going to start to show up. And, and, and if interest rates are still where they're sitting now, um, that's going to be problematic. Yeah. 2024 is not that far away. I mean, I know it still sounds like that, but it's really only half a year and it'll be here before you know it. Um, all right. And then, um, oh, I talked about the, the hotels defaulting on their debt. So, yeah. So, you know, that's that's examples of, you know, people are beginning to just say, screw it. Can't deal with this anymore. Take it. Right. I'll take the hit. Um, all right. So um, going on to the next topic here. Um, so we've talked a lot about um, the boomer generation, you know, on this channel and the fact that it's it's got its challenges in preparing for retirement. We've talked about the millennial and Gen Z's generations about how they're, you know, they're getting started uh, kind of behind the eight ball. You know, they got a lot of things that are that are making it more challenging for them. Um, as usual, we've kind of ignored Generation X because that's just the the lot in life of Generation X to get ignored. Um, and I, I saw some stats that were interesting, and we got a lot of Gen X viewers here. Um, uh, Gen X of all the generations, Gen X is the one that is most anxious about not being able to to make it uh, or not being able to retire uh, on time or retire at all. And uh, they've got good reason for that. So just over half of Generation X have little to nothing socked away for retirement. Um, so uh, obviously, that's not very good because we're getting near retirement age now, right? If you're Gen X, you were born between 1965 and 1980. Um, uh, and, and a big, big reason why they're so concerned besides not having the funds or just looking at their bank accounts is, uh, they are stuck in that sandwich generation, right? Yeah. They're, they're looking at the money going out of the door, caring for aging parents and caring for their kids. Um, uh, and as we talked about, you know, they, 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 they feel when push comes to shove, I can't say no to my parents. I got to take care of them. And of course, my kids, I got to help them out. And, and they are sacrificing their retirement planning for getting their kids started or for, you know, helping the, the, their aging parents sunset. 
Um, and look, everybody has to make their own individual calculus, you know, on this. But as you and I have talked about, Lance, um, you have to, to a certain extent, draw some lines about what you're willing to do, because if you just completely altruistically just spend all, exhaust all your savings, you know, helping everybody else, you get to a point in life where you become a force dependent on those that you love. And, and for a lot of people, that's, that's really, once they hit that stage, they realize that, that that's really, it's not a good place. I shouldn't have done this. Right. Um, so uh, you have to help clients deal with this, you know, all the time. Um, and, and it's terrible conversations, by the way, because <laughs> nobody wants to do it. I mean, you know, the, the hardest conversation is to tell somebody they can't spend money on something. Right. You know, they they have a belief that, oh, I have to help my kids with college or I've got to help my kid with their down payment on the house because they can't afford it. Right. You know, but, and sorry to clarify, but it's not yeah. the, the, the harder part is not not that they can't spend money on something. It's that they can't spend money on somebody that they love. Right. Exactly. That's right. And, and we and we and, and we have you know, we've had a whole generation telling us that we have to do these things. You know, it is your moral responsibility to pay for your kid's college. It is your moral responsibility to, you know, do whatever, you know, buy your kid a car or whatever it is. You know, we just this this has been just kind of ingrained in, in you know, kind of society over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And, and so it's very tough conversations when you sit down with somebody and say, hey, you know, if you do this, it's fine. Right. I just had this conversation uh, just yesterday, um, you know. Uh, you know, you know, guys talking about, he's like, well, I'm upset with the returns of my portfolio. And I'm like, why? He says, well, because my portfolio keeps going down in value. I go, that has nothing to do with the returns of your portfolio. It's because you're taking so much money out of your portfolio. The portfolio can't keep up. Right. And, and, and he's like, well, what do you mean? I'm just taking out the money that I need to live on and to take care of my kids and do whatever. I'm like, yeah, that's more than your portfolio is able to generate in returns. I mean, your portfolio would have to generate 50% a year to keep up with what you're taking out. And, you know, those, those that's a real problematic, you know, situation that we've gotten ourselves into is we have this this moral belief on one side that we have to do certain things. And then on the other side, you know, there's you, the choices that you making are going to put you in a really bad position down the road. And, 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 and you just have to make the decision between what you're going to do is. And again, to your point, do I want to be a burden on my kids or not? That's the question you need to ask yourself. Yeah. Um, so I'm living this in real time right now. Right. So uh, in two weeks, going down to my daughter's graduation from college, um, both of my parents right now are in the hospital. <laughs> um, so like like just living the sandwich experience right now. So I totally understand, you know, the, the pressures that people are, are going under. I, I just want to end this conversation with this chart here. So I mentioned that um, uh over half of, of Gen Z has little to nothing save for retirement, right? But two thirds of them have no retirement strategy, even though the oldest Gen Z is about a decade away from retirement age at this point in time, right? So if you are a Gen Zer and you are one of those 67% that does not have a retirement plan in place, like you got to go talk to a professional financial advisor like today. That's got to be like your number one thing on your list today. Go talk to an advisor and just say, look, you know, Help me out. Help me figure out what I need to do here. I've got some of these really tough challenges I'm wrestling with here about where to send money, you know, whatever. Help me come up with a plan here because as it comes to retirement planning, as you and I have said many times, Lance, if you plan to fit, if you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Yeah. 
And, and look, the if you have a proper financial plan, one that takes into to account some variable rates of return, takes into account bear markets, not, you know, if you do a financial plan, they say, well, if you get 6% a year, you're going to be fine. Throw that out. It's not worth the paper it's written on. You've got to account for things that actually happen in the world, right? You got to have you account for those what ifs. And, you know, and once you start doing that, it's a very sobering experience between what you've got now and, and what you realistically have to have in the bank to retire on. It's not what you think it is. It's, it's worse. Yeah. It, 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 in general, it, it always is a lot worse, which is why most people don't even want to start this, right? Because they kind of have a sense of that. It's like, I don't want to look in the mirror and see how bad it is. But you exactly. have to do that to be able to get beyond that point of, of insufficiency to start working towards a place where it will be sufficient, right? Um, and look, and I won't get into this, but but one of my parents that I've mentioned, I think several times in this channel, uh, you know, did not do that. And 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 the, the collateral damage of that just doesn't impact that individual. It impacts the family, it, oftentimes at a, at a much greater magnitude with much greater destructive force than the person ever would have would have wanted to. But, you know, once you get to the end of, of the road, you know, you can't go back in time and redo things. So anyways, just right. plan. Um, all right. So uh, I want to end with with a little bit of a rant and then with a nice positive element here. And I think we got time to do both of them. All right. Um, so I sent a tweet out uh, that really hit a nerve with folks. And uh, as, as it did, I was thinking, God, this would definitely hit one for Lance. Um, so. Uh, I think we're finally beginning to see a little bit of backlash against uh, the explosion of, of what's being called tipping culture, right? Where, um, you know, since the pandemic, uh, there's been this explosion of new situations where we're being asked to tip, where tipping was never a thing, you know, before the pandemic. Of course, it, we were doing it during the pandemic to kind of help establishments and their staff kind of make it through a, a tough time. But now that we're through all that, you know, it's kind of like the airlines where like they 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 add a fee on because they say, oh, you know, oil prices are really high right now. We need this to just stay afloat. It's a short time emergency fee and then oil prices crater and the fee never goes away. It's just a permanent right. thing going on. Right. So um, as an example of how extreme. So I, I basically said, is anyone else getting tired of being you know, asked to tip 18 to 20 something percent for things that never required tipping before? And bam, you know, huge explosion on Twitter of people largely saying, yeah, it's really gotten out of control. I'm done with it. Um, as an example, I, I shared my um, $34 BLT that I bought the other week. Um, and, and I'll try to see if I can put the photos up here for it. But it is a very expensive sandwich to begin with. And you and I have talked about how you know food inflation has been crazy. And as food prices are starting to come down in certain instances, the food prices, the, 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 the prepared food prices aren't, right? <clears throat> These are the, the airlines with the new fees. So anyways, it's outrageous. Uh, this place sells a BLT sandwich for, uh, if I'm remembering here correctly, at 26 bucks, right? Better be a uh, damn good BLT. Th then you add, well, I will tell you, uh, in its defense, if a sandwich were worth this much money, this would be the sandwich. It's an amazing sandwich. Um, if folks want, maybe I'll, 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 I'll take a hit to the wallet and I'll, I'll, I'll eat one at the end of our next uh our next weekly market recap, <laughs> so folks can actually see what thirty-four dollars. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no. I think I think if you're going to do this, you should buy every one for everybody viewing, and we can all share it together. 
I don't think, well, we did increase the debt by a third of a trillion dollars. If I can tap into that and then probably we can. <laughs> but anyways, it's 26 bucks, you know, menu price. Then it's 28, 10 or something like that when California puts on its sales tax. And then at the kiosk, they flip it around, you know, and say, oh, you know, do you want, it's, it's got the, do you want to tip 18% or 24%, right? Um, so at 18% tip there, you're at 34 bucks uh, for the BLT. If you want to be more generous than that, you're paying 36 or more for it, right? So, um, you know, of course, I think any sane person would say, I don't care if it's wrapped in gold, you know, I'm not, I'm not paying near $40 for a sandwich going forward, but that's how crazy it's become. And the fact that like, you can charge somebody 28 bucks for a sandwich that's you know this is this is a sandwich shop i mean it's it's not a sit down experience you're not getting waited on there's not all the bells and whistles that you used to you know justify a tip and then just to turn that thing around and say oh yeah can i make this a fifth more expensive for you uh it, it's hard not to feel like really kind of insulted by that and again i i know the business is trying to hang on i know all of its input costs have gone up I know the wait staff is, you know, probably just barely scraping by. But my point is, is like, it's getting to the point where, of course, this is an extreme example, but everybody else has their own stories, where the consumer is just going to start changing their behavior, they're going to substitute. And I do think that there could be a real, like, wipe out a lot of these small businesses. Um, because people just say, I don't want to get emotionally blackmailed to pay a ridiculous price for something that I never tipped for anyway. So just screw it. You know, I'm, I'm just going to start making it at home or I'm going to, I'm going to change my behavior to go shop at the few places that aren't demanding, uh, you know, this type of tipping thing. And, and we could definitely see potentially a really big injury on a lot of, you know, otherwise deserving mom and pop establishments that we'd love to keep in our communities. No, I, I agree. You know, it's, and, and, and they, they do it, you know, it kind of almost through trickery, which is, you know, they do, they, you know, they, they have a little kiosk now and they spin it around and, and there's your tipping amounts and there's not a zero option. There is, there is actually a button at the bottom. It's small and it's you kind have to of, for it. yeah. the bottom, it says no tip and you can hit that button, but you feel guilty, right? I mean, it's like, God, well, you, like, you feel guilty oh, and even even more for for food like yeah. like definitely i'm of the mindset that they shouldn't ask you for a tip for food until it's been delivered right and you've consumed it because here you're like held hostage like all right if i under tip here is this dude spitting in my sandwich as he's making it right <laughs> exactly yeah no that's that's you know like i said it's it's I, I don't like that either. Um, you know, simply, you know, again, I'm a good tipper, right? So if, if we go out to a restaurant and we get good service and, you know, the food's well prepared and the wait, you know, the wait staff is, you know, doing their job and they're really kind of on top of it, you know, I'll tip 20, 25, 30%, you know, depending on, you know, kind of what's going on. But, you know, I, when I'm buying a cup of coffee where I'm walking up to a counter and they're spinning it around going, hey, do you want to put an 18% tip on a cup of coffee? I'm like, no. Yeah. Or a drive-through or yeah. pickup food. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, all right. I thought you were going to get a lot more ranty on that, but uh, we'll no, let no, I, I agree. I, uh, no, no. I, I, uh, look, I am all, look, my kids are all, have all waited tables. I waited tables. I understand the plight of that job. And, and, and again, there's a lot of people that, you know, one of, one of the, you know, my kids would come home from working. They'd work, you know, an eight or a 10 hour shift at a restaurant, right? They'd come home and they'd say, well, I made this much in tips, but you know, I, you know, I, I waited on this one table, it was 12 people and they didn't tip at all. 
right? And, you know, and, and just, and that's very upsetting for them because they get two bucks an hour plus their tips. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And they have to, and, and now, of course, a lot of it is, is they have to split their tips with the cooks and everybody else so they don't actually get the entire tip. Um, you know, so I'm, I'm very sensitive to the need to tip properly because of my experience in that industry and my kids' experience in that industry. And that's why I tip well when I'm serviced well. Um, and, and, that, and I'm completely fine with that. But I do have a problem when somebody just hands me a cup of coffee and want, you know, an extra, an extra fifth of, you know, the value of that cup of coffee just for handing me a cup of coffee. What, you know, you didn't really go to that much effort, right? I get it, but it does seem a bit excessive. Oh yeah, yeah, and that that is the you know that's the injury or the injustice that 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 Twitter you know thing really uncovered there. It was the non-service you know situation tipping, and uh, and it does sort of look it, it smacks in many ways of like the hey if I can get away with it let's try to get away with it. And again, you know these are in most cases smaller establishments where you know they're they're not rolling in the dough probably, and they're just trying to do whatever they can. But you know it it. I think it breaks a social fairness element that people are understandably uh, justified in feeling. Kind of my bigger point, like I said, is is I think it's 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 maybe kind of like a short term gain that actually may result in a long term you know outcome that nobody wants. Right? It's going to be a loss of business for these guys that, that they don't want to eventually maybe go into business because of it. And we don't want these places to go into business either. To be honest, though, I don't really know what the the solution is here because I, I will tell you, like living where I live, once you get to the point where a freaking BLT costs twenty eight bucks pre tax pre tip, <laughs> you just don't go anymore. It's just there's yeah. there's nothing they could do to make that worth that much money, right? Well, look, I mean, this is but this is the cost and consequence of raising minimum wages to fifty well, exactly bucks an hour. You know, that's all got to get passed through. Well, right. and the creation that of inflation that the central banks and the fiscal policymakers have done, like right? th th this is it. it. And it's probably, and this is sort of maybe where I should have, should have positioned it is, is I fear we're going to end this whole process with a lot more small businesses gone, a lot of more, you know, jobs gone, local jobs gone, and fewer big chains. Yeah. Right. That step in to fill the void. Well, and the other side of this too is is that once it's gets, these prices get embedded, this is the the sticky part of inflation. You know, inflation may go down, but that BLT will still cost you twenty four bucks. Yeah, yeah, and that and I mean that's that's why inflation is so pernicious, right? Is it it rarely do you get to dial the clock back to to previous prices? That's right. Um, and I don't know, I don't know. I, all I can say is is that like my. I mean, this changed years ago for me, but, you know, basically my dining out, yeah, once in a blue moon, you know, my wife and I'll go, you know, have a nice date somewhere, but I pretty much just go to the hot bar at the local grocery store where I can still buy, you know, buy weight. Um, and there's no tipping or anything like that involved. There's no packaging involved. It's all fresh. Um, it is, it is pound for pound, the best deal in town. So like all the sandwich shops around here hate me because I just don't go to them anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I absolutely agree with you. Okay. All right. Well, look, ending on hopefully a nice positive note. Um, uh, there are two things that uh, that I saw this week that, that again, I, I, I thought of you that we talk about here briefly. One, uh, it's, a, it's a video. There's a video clip from the French Open where um, uh, one of the, you know, top players, a guy named Nicolas Mahout, 
um, he lost to uh, Argentina's Leonardo Mayer, uh, lost a match he really wanted to win, you could tell. And he actually got quite teary at the end. And he's sort of sitting right after they shook hands. He sits down. He's just kind of processing it. He's, he's kind of misty-eyed. Camera zoomed in on him. Um, and then his, his probably like eight-year-old son runs out across the court and just, you know, hugs his dad and, you know, can't hear what they're saying. But of course, his son is comforting his hero, right? And uh, and the guy realizes that his son's there and he composes himself. He gets up, he grabs his son by the hand. They walk out, the crowd's cheering, you know, he's waving everybody. And it's so interesting because it's such a great touching moment. But you see the competitor who won, this guy, Mayer, and he's watching this and you can see him kind of choking up. <laughs> and you can kind of see his brain saying like, wait a minute. I just won this game, but like, I think that guy's the real winner here, right? Yeah. yeah, it was just like a great kind of, you know, parent moment, right? Like, hey, you know, I, I had one of my my lowest moments ever. And then my kid basically just reminded me of what really matters in life, right? Okay. Um, no, maybe maybe think I, a lot about our, our conversation last week about Nicholas Winton and, and the things that really matter. Yeah, it is. And, and I think this is one thing that you know, the, the, this current generation is making a mistake on. And, and again, you know, there's, there was an interesting uh, article that was written just recently talking about the impact to the current generation and particularly not it, it, some of the millennial generation, but really the, this kind of this Gen Z, you know, this, this generation that we're in now, um, you know, a lot, you know, easy access to pornography, um, you know, easy access to dating apps and, if you take a look at marital statistics, they're declining. If you take a look at, you know, people wanting to have children, that's declining, you know, rather rapidly. We've got the lowest birth rate in history. Um, there's there's a lot of societal implications for that. You know, if you want strong, you know, there's a there's an old saying that if you want a stronger economy, you, you need to have children. And there's what that's what creates your stronger economy. And we're certainly working against that trend right now. But the one thing that I think is, is going to show up is, you know, the, the greatest thing in life, you know, when I was 38, I did not want kids. I, I was like, I was building businesses and I was participating in capitalism. And the last thing I wanted to do at that point was to have kids. And, um, you know, a couple of years later, I have my son and I would never regret that for a moment. And then my daughter, and then I got married and I got two more kids. And, you know, the, ki the kids are now everything that I live and work for. And it, it completely changes your focus from being very selfish in terms of you know what you're trying to do and achieve in life to what's really important. And I think this is going to be one of the things that we're going to look back on at this current generation and say, you know, all these dating apps where you know no longer does somebody need to be involved in a relationship. You know, if you throw up a red flag, I've got 15 other people that have liked me on Tinder or whatever, and I can just go to the next person. And 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 I think we're going to see this, this, you know, this this void of having children and this idea of, of this kind of more of a selfish culture um, really have a lashback at some point down the road where there's a deep regret for not having gone through having children and, and experiencing what that can actually mean for you. Because some of the greatest moments in, in my life, I mean, look, I can't talk for everybody and I'm certainly not trying to, but all I can tell you is, is that I've done a lot of fantastic things in my life. I spent a big chunk of my early years traveling all around the world. I've had fantastic experiences. I've done things that a lot of people have never done. I've had just a, a tremendous set of opportunities given to me uh, by people I've met, people I've known, things I've done, uh, events I've been, you know, sports I've been in. But none of those compare 
to the experiences I've had, you know, being with my children and going on vacations with my children and seeing them, you know, learn and develop. And, uh, you know, even today, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, my son's in college. And so one of, the, one of the ways that we communicate is I play video games with him online at college uh, on the weekends. And so we'll get online and play a video game together and talk and catch up and communicate because that's what he enjoys. So it allows us to participate in something together. And it's the best time. We have the best conversations. We talk about all the things that are going on in college. And, you know, again, I would not be able to have that experience that I not have kids. Yeah, yeah, uh, uh, really well said. And and look, we're biased because we're fathers, yeah. and, and we, we've done. Well, you, you don't. This, no, it's not that you're biased. If you don't have kids, you can't understand it, right? This and and again, you know, it, it's it, when I was when I was single and didn't have kids. You know, you go to a restaurant and some some parents there, their kids are screaming and throwing a fit. And you're like, oh my god, they just shut right. their kid. I can't imagine having kids. You know, it's just God, it's terrible. It's got to be horrible. Um, and then once you have kids, you understand, right? And you just, you you cannot understand what it is. And, and look, and especially when it comes to women and, and having children, right? Their, their perspective of children is something men will never understand because you didn't grow that thing, right? right? Um, so that's a totally different view of, of children. But we as men, you know, we can't understand that until you actually walk in those shoes. And And, and again, it's just, you know, this is, you know, uh, you know, a sad commentary, you know, when you talk about, you know, fatherless homes and the the, the problem that we have with a lot of, of our society today that, you know, children are being raised in one parent families and these type of things. And this is causing problems within our culture because they're not getting that input of ideas and views and values that they should be getting from two different parents. No, absolutely. And, and that's actually kind of a separate issue, which is sort of the the, the decline of the nuclear family in America. We have zero time to, to really get yeah. into the details of that. <laughs> the other day. Um, and I agree, I agree with everything you said, especially about not knowing until you, you become a parent. Um, but look, you know, what I meant to say is, look, you know, uh, everybody's lifestyle choices is their lifestyle choices. I'm not putting any judgment call on it. Um, but to, to your point of, um, uh, I know you're sort of talking about hookup culture and, and whatnot, and, and, and the fact that it's more about me and, and less about being part of a family. Um, but there is a growing, uh, movement called the, I don't know if it's called the dink moment, the movement, but it's D I N K double income, no kids. And it's kind of like, yeah. look, we can have a great life forever if we just decide not to have kids. And so let's just have a great life together. And more and more couples are choosing to do that and, and more power to them if they want to. I'm not, not trying to place judgment on that. I just want to underscore your point there about the meaning you get from having kids in your life. And, and especially for us guys, meaning we didn't even realize fully we were going to get until we we realized it as parents. Um, I go back to my, my comments about, you know, hearing advice from people who have lived past 100 you know, go on Google, type in centenarian advice. And it always comes down to those three things. It's the quality. The number one is always the quality of your relationships, right? Which yep. which are heavily about family usually, not always. Um, the second is purpose in your life. The third is good health because you're not going to live to 100 if you've got bad health. Um, and so my advice to be, to people who are choosing not to have kids, which is totally fine, is is that's totally fine. But, but take into account how important relationships are in your life and say, okay, if I'm not going to have those type of really deep, meaningful relationships with children 
in my life, who am I going to have them in with so that I don't, you know, age and find out that, oh my gosh, my life's really unfulfilling because this like number one requirement for a good, you know, fulfilling life, I, I, I don't have as much in my life. So anyways, yeah. okay. Vlogging. So <clears throat> on the topic though of family, which actually blends into the, the, the last topic I'm, I'm going to mention real quickly, because we're really running short on time is um, I was sharing with a friend the other day, a, a, a band that I discovered on YouTube. And I was thinking about you as a musician um, with this Lance, or at least a guy that likes to play the guitar. Um, I discovered them years ago and they're a cover band, but what's so fun about them is it, it was started by a dad who just a big passionate musician. And he, he had a daughter who turned out to be a really talented singer. And you can tell that he was instrumental in helping her really teach, you know, learn how to sing well. And so the band's called Foxes and Fossils. So it's his daughter and a few of her friends who are great singers. And it's the dad and a few of his friends who are great musicians. And they just do these great covers of all these songs that we, we love. And um, they're, the quality of their musicianship, you know, the guys that play is, is really staggering. I mean, they're great musicians. And the quality of the vocals are amazing. These girls are great singers. The old guys aren't bad either. And their harmonies are just out of this world. So what's been so fun to watch them is he started when the girls were like 15. And now they're in their mid-20s, right? So there's like 10 years of videos of them growing along the way and getting all better as, as a band and musicians. But they keep getting, dis they, they got more and more discovered as time went on. So now they'll do like, um, you know, uh, Peace Train. And, you know, the top comment is Cat Stevens saying, guys, I really enjoyed this. You nailed it, right? Or they do, you know, a Crosby, Stills and Nash song. And you've got Graham Nash saying, guys, this is one of the best covers of the song I've ever seen, right? So like, even the music community, like the greats have found these guys and are cheering them on. It's such a great story. But at the core of it is this dad who's just having the time of his life doing what he loves with his daughter. It's just yeah. so fun. Yeah. Any, any parent, any musician would just like, so anyways, Foxes and Fossils, I'll put their URL here to, for folks to go check. I don't have any relationship with these guys. I'm just a fan. Um, if I can play us out here, Lance, um, I'll try to play us out with a clip of one of their, you know, showing their great harmonies. Um, I wouldn't do that. Google will shut you down. Well, I was going to say, unless YouTube flags the video for, uh, for copyright infringement. Yep. Um, all right, folks. Well, look, um, if you're still here with us, thanks so much for hanging for yet another week. Um, a reminder, lots of, of head scratching stuff going on out there, which is why week after week, we recommend that folks work under the guidance of a pro good professional financial advisor to navigate your wealth through all of this. But in particular, one that takes into account all the macro risks, issues and opportunities that Lance and I have talked about here. If you have a good one who's doing that for you, and by doing that, I mean putting together a personalized portfolio plan for you and then executing it for you while keeping you well-informed. If they're doing that, great. You really should stick with them. They're rare and they're worth your weight in gold. If you don't have one though, or if you'd like a second opinion from one who does, consider scheduling a free consultation with the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses, perhaps even Lance and his team there at RAA. To do that, just go to Wealthion.com, fill out the short form there, only takes you a couple of seconds doesn't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a public service that they offer. Um, and if you enjoy these weekly market recaps, want to see them continuing happening every week from here, please do Lance and I a favor, support this channel by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Lance, I'll give you the last word here, buddy, as we head out. Um, basically right now, just, you know, kind of keep, keep your head on a swivel. You know, we've talked before about, you know, being able to be audible in this market. 
And I think that's going to be the case for the rest of the summer. Again, I wouldn't be surprised to see a little bit of a correction in tech, uh, see a bit of a rotation into some of the unloved sectors of the market. That's still, you know, probable coming up. But again, just, uh, you know, be nimble. All right. Well said, buddy. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching. Um, if YouTube lets us, uh, we'll, we'll play out here with a little clip from Foxes and Fossils. Uh, otherwise, have yourselves a great weekend.